welcome back to the Y Hockey Periodically Wondering How This Season Ended So Soon podcast. I've never said that before on this show because usually Panther seasons are a slog. This one's gone by way too quickly and it ties into a theme I think I want to weave throughout this show, Tommy, which is have we appreciated how insane this season has been for the Florida Panthers enough? Because I don't think we have. I, I don't think we have a lot of the times because we're, you know, internally trying to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. I mean, how many times has a Panthers season started out slow, but then they have, you know, a couple big win streaks and we've all seen, you know, even teams that have looked good flame out early. You know, we really needed to wait to see like Huberto. Oh yeah, Huberto's definitely going to get 100 points. Oh yeah, Huberto's, you know, going to be in the heart. You know, Barkov's going to come close to 40. He's got one to go. Um, you know, like this is they're going to set NHL records. Like they've already set NHL records. There's 20 games left. You know, it took to that point for people to be like, I think, oh wow, this is that season that you know not only is going to hopefully catapult this franchise into relevancy and consistent contending, but I think it's also going to be one of the best seasons this franchise is capable of. I mean, just because how many times are you going to score the most amount of goals in the last almost 30 years, Um, you know, alongside, you know, a lot of other franchise records being broken NHL records being broken by your top homegrown guys, guys like Huberto, Barkov, Ekblad, you know, Lundell as a rookie. These are guys you drafted. They're, you know, they're people that, you know, Huberto, Barkov, and Lundell were all people that they were downplayed. They were doubted. They, they were thought not to be as good as, you know, the hype of Florida Panthers fans and that were they were given. And so this season, I think for me, I wish I went back and relished a little more because this is the year that we get to say, like, we proved people wrong. Like, Barkov is one of the best players in the game, one of the best draft picks of all time. So many people were stunned that he was the pick. You know, Huberto is probably the best in his draft class at number three, and we got that. I mean, this year I think it cemented how good of a defenseman Aaron Ekblad is and that just maybe he's not as good as Makar or Heiskanen, um, but I think he belongs in the same breath as a number one legit top ten NHL defenseman, and for my money, top five. I have him right up there with those guys in Yossi. Um, I, he does everything so well. I mean, in this season, even with his injury, it was the best hockey he's ever played. And he looked unbelievable. I think part of this, and you were talking to me about it before, was how this season's been so good and yet you kind of sleep on it because I told this story on the podcast back in November. You could go listen to it. There was the game against Carolina when Barkoff was out. It was a Saturday night. It was against, obviously, the Hurricanes, a team the Panthers have never been good against. And they steamrolled them so hard in the first period. This team had come off the, the eight-game winning streak to start the year. At that point, they were 9-0-1. And I was still like, okay, what is this team? Because Quenville had obviously left at that point. You know, you're, you're, you're still somewhat doubting whether 2021 was the season that we thought it was. Because it was the, the bubble season, because it was a fluke, it was, it was nothing you could repeat. 
And then they steamrolled Carolina so hard in that first period. At that point, I remember saying, the regular season's over. None of the rest of the games matter at this point. This team is that good. And maybe that undersold, you know, just what we were about to see. Because by the end of the season, and you were telling me beforehand, there were times when you just didn't want to watch the game. Not because you didn't want to watch them play, but because you knew what was going to happen. And it was almost like you don't really need to watch the entirety of the, the game because the highlights are going to be worth it more than the game itself. You know, and I, think, yeah. and, and I think there's also something to be said about, like, what is the craziest thing of this individual season? What is the craziest stat? Because getting to 120 points is ludicrous. They had the seventh most wins in a season in league history. Um, they can still get to 59, which is, again, insane in a league that has parity in it. I mean, we'll talk about parity in, in a little more later in the show, but it has parity in it. And to get 59 wins is bananas if they get to 59. Obviously, we're recording this Thursday afternoon before we know that. But the records that Huberto has set, he's going to set multiple NHL records for assists by a winger. You know, he blew past the, the original left-wing assist record, and he's going to beat Yager's record for most assists by a winger, period. You know, Barkov would have 40-plus goals already if not for an injury. Aaron Eckblad would have set franchise records for defensemen if he wasn't hurt. You know, you have four players with 30-plus goals. They could have gotten five if some, uh, some other players stayed healthy. You know, they've set the cap error scoring record. They're the highest scoring team since 95-96. All of that. But they you know brought the in, they brought in the best trade di deadline acquisition. I, I mean, I can't remember a better one in the cap era. I mean, I, there are I, a lot of good ones, and I'd have to I go can. back and think about it, but Giroux, getting Giroux, is also just completely insane. Could you have ever imagined a season where the Panthers are the only destination for the number one trade deadline target? Because an, he wants to win a cup, and he knows he, his best chance to win a cup is in Florida. That's insane. That does not happen. Yeah. And, and, and the article that in the, I think it was The Athletic, Kevin Kurz, or Kevin Kurtz, I, I forget, he's the San Kevin Jose. Kurtz, yes. Well, he's um, now covering the Islanders, but he used to cover the Sharks, yes. Right. He, he did an interview with Jumbo, and he was saying that, you know, for this time, you know, when he was going to Toronto, he really only looked at Toronto. But then when he's coming to Florida, he only really looked at Florida because it was the only thing really worth, you know, getting out of Switzerland and, and doing it all over again, um, you know, because they had a real shot. So that's, you know, two very um respected voices who were in a place long term and know what a good franchise is and knows what it takes to want to move uh, and be encouraged to move uh you know move your family and, and all that stuff and when it comes when you hear that stuff that puts you on equal footing as you know the red wings when they're when they're good, you know, the Rangers at times. I mean, no one's going to ever be as good as the Rangers because everyone apparently loves New York City. I don't get it because it's not my personal taste. But um, You wouldn't be the only one who doesn't yeah. like uh, the, the city of New York. I want to also go over what I think is the craziest stat of this season. All of those are nuts. But do you want to know what the craziest one is to me? They had two separate 11-game home winning streaks in the same season. Yeah. Two I mean, separate 11-game home winning streaks. That is bananas it, how it do shows, you do that when the biggest critique is like who would want to go play in florida well the players apparently really like playing in florida that that says it all whether you whether you think that they could sell more tickets whether you think that the fans could be more passionate or knowledgeable or less non-traditional or whatever you want to call it 
um, you know, they, it clearly is getting results this year. So the, the players on the ice feel comfortable, and you you can't can't say otherwise. And when it comes to the playoffs, that matters a lot more. So if they can carry that over, um, it will really help them, especially given they've won the East and right now they're on pace to have a good shot at the president's trophy. Um, I so. mean, I think that in a season like this, you often don't appreciate it in the run-up because you're in the mode of you're thinking about all the yeah. individual things that are going on. And only in hindsight do you genuinely appreciate how good this is. Like, this is one of the best regular seasons in the history of the league. Just bar none. It, you, it's not the, it, it might not be the best. It's obviously it's not the best in the cap era because what Tampa did a couple years ago. But it's one of the best seasons in the history of the league. Like, yeah. And that's insane. For a franchise, as I pointed out a couple days ago, um, Mark Pesic and Mike Matheson were playing as forwards two years ago on this team. And two years later, they are having one of the best regular seasons in the history of the National Hockey League. That, this franchise, I always thought was capable of something. I didn't think it was capable of this. And it's one of those things where I thought, okay, this team's pretty good. I like this team, but I still have questions. You know, again, is last year a fluke because of the weird circumstances? And they definitively proved by November it was not a fluke. And I think they've lost consecutive games and regulations like four times this year, and that's it. And this last streak is the fourth. You think about that. You think about the fact that they've actually had bad injury luck this year to some extent. Like, it hasn't been like Vegas-level injury luck. You know, where it's but but Barkov's missed time, or Hagee's missed time, Ekblad's obviously missed time, Lundell's missed time, and Bobrovsky. it has sim- Bobrovsky's missed some time, yeah, and it simply hasn't mattered. So when everybody goes into the MVP discussion, you know, I mean, Jonathan Huberto said after to, before the Toronto game, yeah, I'd vote for Austin Matthews for MVP. It's for my argument is like, if we're going for most valuable player, most valuable player adjudged to his team, no Panther can be most valuable because they've missed every single one of them, bar Huberto and Uyghur, and it hasn't mattered in the slightest. They've still destroyed everybody. So, like, on that argument, you can't say anybody's been most valuable. I thought it was going to be Ekblad, and maybe he's the most valuable in the playoffs, but they've lost three games since he went out of the lineup. Like, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous yeah. what they've done. Some of it on the stretch is, is fattened up because they played a lot of bad teams, and that is what it is. But, but that means they, they, they really hit the mark when they played the tougher end of their schedule to start the season. So, I mean, you, you get to reap what you sow. So, so-so. Um, but to, put, to kind of put the button on a few other points, uh, when it comes to MVP, I, my only thing about how to interpret it, I love when they, people say that because they always only apply it to certain teams. Like Dom at The Athletic will say, you know, will make your point about Huberto to the Panthers, but then he'll have three people on the same line on the Calgary Flames in his top ten for the Hart Trophy, and it's like, okay, yeah, that that you I know, mean, he, he, and he's, and for he's me, good. I like Dom's work. I think there's obviously nuance in every one of these discussions. So, for me, for me, uh, I mean, he, yeah, for me, I, I would have it be Matthews. Sisterkin and then Goudreau would be my top three. My fourth and fifth and sixth would be some mix of Huberto, McDavid, and Yossi. And that's really, that's all that matters, you know. Um, I, I don't really care to go any further than that. And but then to that, go... Like, this is a really hard year to pick the heart. Yeah. This is a really, really yeah. hard year to and pick the heart. It's good when that's the case. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with 
you know, I think everyone kept saying the Panthers had unrealistic opinions of Huberto in the heart race. I never saw anyone who didn't want him just to be mentioned in the top five or six. I That's all they've been that, asking I for. All I asked is that his season is appreciated for how insane it is. Mm-hmm. Not that he should win it because yeah. I agreed immediately. Like, again, my argument about the Panthers being an insane wagon also comes to the fact that they've missed everybody. Like, most of their good players at some point have been hurt or missed time, and it hasn't mattered in the slightest. You could look at their record without Barkov, who is by far the best player on the team, and it didn't matter. They still beat everybody up senseless. And they beat good teams when he was out of the lineup. You know, yeah. like, this is – these are just facts. And – it's as I said. I think Aaron Eckblad's most valuable when it comes to playoff hockey, and we'll talk about that in a second. But just overall, <laughs> Sam Reinhart's got 80 points. He's become yeah. diet Chris Kreider, which I wasn't expecting from Sam Reinhart, and he's played most of the season third line at don't, even strength. Don't, don't insult Sam no. Reinhart by calling him diet Chris Kreider that when was he's a, a better player. That was a I joke. It was like a Chris joke, Kreider. but I mean, compared to but, what people think about Chris Kreider. Um, but, but listen, he I, was I awesome. And I we wanted, don't appreciate that because his entire season's been overshadowed by everybody else. And he's got 80 points. Like, what, what better example of a win-win trade than that trade? Like, that's why I say why Bill Zito's a good GM. Because you could look at these trades and go, everybody's won with his deals. You know, most teams have yeah. been like, oh, yeah, no, both of these deals are, are on both sides are pretty dang good. Like the Hornquist-Matheson trade, for instance, like I can't say that the Panthers aren't ecstatic with what they've gotten and Mike Matheson's rebounded in Pittsburgh. So most of his trades have been win-win. And I think yeah, the he's at least able to be a third-pair guy without the scrutiny. But yeah. I, I, I just wanted to answer that question that you had because I've kind of failed to at this point. What I think is the best stat and for me, it's not really a stat. It's the fact that, well, I guess you could say it's it's the it's the record after Quinville. Um, I guess would be my favorite stat. Uh, for for uh, one of the reasons, you know, a lot of us took a while to appreciate or really throw their full belief behind the team and be like, yeah, this is one of the best regular season teams we, we've seen in a while. Is you know. You didn't know if it was really going to truly last, you know, with the change of coach. Obviously, it's a whole different ballgame when you go into the playoffs, and I think the Quinville acumen, you know, that's kind of where his value really starts to pay off. So we'll see how it goes. I have – at one point, I was – You were doubtful of Andrew Burnett. I thought they were going to have to replace him. Because to me, you know, I – you know, I just had a different idea of what kind of what kind of outward energy I wanted the coach to display. And that's fine. I think maybe, you know, at the end of the day, I was probably wrong in that sense because they probably need a coach that matches Barkov's energy more. Uh, and I think Brunette does that. So maybe it helps keep the room and the whole atmosphere and everybody on the same kind of wavelength. So... You know, I, I'm happy to be wrong about it, and I. But you know, he ultimately he's an. In, everyone keeps saying, "Why is the interim tag there?" Because it ultimately comes down to, can he win playoff series? Can he go toe to toe against you know Toronto, Tampa, Boston, uh, Pittsburgh? You know, Pittsburgh has a fantastic coach in Mike Sullivan. If they end up going that way. 
you know, Washington is a pretty veteran coaching staff. I mean, maybe um, they haven't won a championship in a while, but you know, he, he has won a champion. Laviolette has won a championship. He's been to so. some finals. He again, we're not talking a bad coach here. He knows what he's so, doing. I also wanted to and, say, and it's not talked- that I think Brunette's going to do bad or choke or anything, but is he? If you know, the goal is to win right now, this year, next year, the year after, three years, win, try to go for three cups, or you know, try to get two in three or whatever. Um, but you know, you got to win one. And if you go through this playoff series and you come out doubtful that Brunette is the is the head coach. Maybe you don't fire him. I don't know how you do that, but maybe you bring in a stronger assistant. I don't know. But you, you have to judge him off of that. Uh, I think more the so thing with Andrew season. Burnett, which I haven't but, decided yet whether it's genius or the greatest happy accident in the history of hockey, and I guess the playoffs are going to kind of determine this, is think about this. If Before the season, we knew that there was the sort of Damocles hanging over the head of Joel Quenville when the Blackhawks investigation was going to come down. And I thought the X factor and why that team was good was because Quenville was actually a good coach. I, he botched the playoffs last year, but Joel Quenville's a good coach. Irrespective of what you think of his conduct in the Blackhawks situation in 2010, which was obviously abhorrent. When I look at Andrew Burnett, it, was a while, it took me a while to determine whether this was just the Panthers' system and structures around Brunette is, are so strong that you could put anybody back there and it wouldn't matter, the team would still be good? Or how much of this is Andrew Brunette knowing, hey, I, I know what Joel Quenville would do in this situation. I know what kind of team we have here. I'm just going to put my little stamp where I need to, and otherwise I'm going to back off. And otherwise I'm just going to let them do what they do. Because this team, this team can run on autopilot. And... I didn't know whether it was one or the other. I think a lot of us were wondering whether it was one or the other. Because Brunette got criticized early in the year, and that four-game losing streak on that road trip with the shootouts and stuff, and people were mad at him. And I said, listen, it's still early. The regular season at this point is functionally irrelevant because we know they're going to the playoffs. And eventually we realized, you know, this, this team can run on autopilot, but a lot of that's because Andrew Brunette is putting them in a situation well, where they can run on autopilot. I, I want to... I want to correct you because I'm I'm worried about the use of autopilot. Well, what I mean by that is, but he, I mean he knows what he has to do when the team needs he, to get shaken up a little bit. He knows when he needs to do it, but otherwise the systems are in place are so strong that he didn't need to really do a lot to change them. This team was what it was, and that was so strong that against most teams, most nights, they didn't really need to. You know, you didn't need incredible like Joel Quenville putting Mark Pesek on as a forward to get the team motivated kind of things. Right. And, and I agree with that point, but I think for me, what really sold me was Brunette wasn't relying on the systems. I, I thought, I mean, obviously the, the structure, the, the, the bones of it are, are the same and everything, but when it comes to, uh, reining in and, and some of the restraint and puck management and everything that was coached and coaxed a lot from brunette and uh, mainly from brunette and, and for me what i've kind of seen is him being able to take over the reins and become the driver and the conductor of the team now uh you know in conjunction with the leadership on the in, you know the skaters so uh, it, it really was you know 
if he says jump, will they in the playoffs say how high because of the proven track record they've been through in the regular season? That answer now is yes. I think, you know, whether they can actually execute and if his, you know, what his decisions are and, the you know, all that's going to come down to their opponent and, and, you know, the bounces and a lot of things like that. But for the most part, you you would have to say the players trust his voice, they listen to him, and they respond to him. And like you said, he doesn't need to necessarily have the Quinville bag of tricks because ultimately I think they listen and respond to him faster than they did to Quinville that he doesn't have to resort to the bag of tricks to, to make a spark. You know, he doesn't have to use the the starter the starter log. You know, he can start a fire on his own. Um, and, and I think that maybe it's because he's younger, he has a little more experience uh, in kind of the newer game, and, and players remember watching him, and, you know, maybe they've played with other veterans, and you know, or they're veterans, that, you know, like Derek McKenzie has probably a lot of stories of, of Brunette and, like, his small area skills and things like that and his I mean, compete level. I think level. the thing with Derek McKenzie is, like, he played with a lot of these guys. Like, he knows them. Like, he's been around the Panthers for a long time. So, yeah. he, he knows. And, like, that, that helps. And we think about old Samuelson. Like, he knows, right? And we think about but, bringing in, you know, like, I, just I, the, 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 the variety of different I, experiences has helped this team. Yeah, but I think it's, you know, I think that there is a little proof and some evidence you can point to that there is a little better, I don't want to say chemistry or connection, but um, call and response between the coach and the players, I think, with Burnett. Maybe because, you know, they've only had high, you know, kind of high times. They haven't had too much adversity. They've had a little, um, obviously, with the initial coaching change being the most. Barkoff uh, being hurt. They had yeah. some COVID issues. But, like, it, it's been there, but what happens I mean, is... I, I, what, you know, he's built so much trust, I think, navigating that and, and you know, doing so with putting, you know, 57 wins on the board now, uh, you know, looking for 58, 59. That's... Where do you credit the, the comeback stuff to? Because, like, in the first season of Quenville... They had comebacks. Like, they did two four-goal comebacks in a week in that 2019-20 season, if you remember. And that team was far worse than this one is. It's... And I don't, I don't know where I credit the comebacks to. Because, you know, like, they have the Ryan Lombergs will do his thing on the bench. But it's like, I think whether it is Andrew Burnett knowing, all right, this is what I have to do to get them to go, right? And when they go, like, he knows it's downhill and nobody can stop them. Or is it one of those things where it's like the team just has so much belief in themselves and belief in what they're doing because they have proof of concept that they can just go downhill whenever they need to? Because, like, you know, once is an accident, twice is a trend, three times is just like, and they've done it so many times this year. Like, you'll turn the game off and you'll be really mad at them. And then by 5-2 or 5-3 or whatever it was in the Toronto game, you're just like, oh, they're actually going to do this again. That they're, they're going to do this again. And then they do it. And it's, I don't know what I credit that to. And I don't know whether they're going to be able to do it in the playoffs, obviously, because you're playing much better teams that are going to have played against you more. But this, this season has been incredible when it comes to just that. The, and I think the other thing that is so much fun to watch is when that switch gets turned on, right? 
I have not seen an another NHL team look as absolutely amateur as when the Panthers play against like Columbus those couple times and the Blue Jackets look like uh, a, a junior team. You know what I mean? Like they would take playoff teams and absolutely throw them to the woods. Like remember Dallas that game before the nine goal Columbus game in January when they just ripped them senseless and you're just like, holy crap. It's one of those things where, like, they didn't get the 11-goal game that Pittsburgh did against Detroit because I think at some points, like, the Panthers actually did pull back in some of those games where they were ripping someone so senseless. But it's like, I think about that Detroit game earlier in this month where it was nothing-nothing. Detroit was playing pretty good, and then the Panthers just scored four so quickly. You're just like, wow, it's over. And once they got two, it was over. It's just it's just one of those things where it's those little things where you appreciate just how good they are and how much they could turn it on when they needed to and when they wanted to. And uh, if I had a moment this year where I was just like, man, I thought that Carolina game early in the year was the moment where I knew that we were dealing with something pretty special. But, you know, there, there is but there, I don't even think they think there's a one singular moment like there are a lot of them. You know, I think about those comebacks and. You know, you the multiple four-goal comebacks, which were insane. I think about Barkov's goal to set up Lundell against the Red Wings, which was just like, come on. Like, I, I, I was thinking in that moment, Mo Sider has to give up the Calder now. He just got mossed. I, and it was just, it was one, like, I can't think of an, like, because most of these seasons have, like, a moment that defines them. This team doesn't have a moment. It's got, like, 15 yeah, that's true. I mean, for me, the biggest reason that they are able to come back, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, you know, just the last part I talked about happened to dovetail into that perfectly was I think it is the, the, the relationship between the coaching staff and the players that keeps the players comfortable, keeps the players confident. And, you know, going off of that, it's allowed guys like Huberto, Ekblad, Barkov, you know, even younger players, Lindell, and, you know, Reinhardt, who maybe is playing third line and maybe wants more minutes. But, you know, the way the coaching staff communicates and with the players handles it, makes practices fun, you know, makes practices competitive. I'm assuming they keep games competitive when it can get boring because they never really seem to be disinterested. You know, yes, at times they've seemed disinterested. Tuesday night normal, was the but, first time in a long time. I'm like, they didn't care about the result but, of this game, and you can see it. For the most part, I mean, the, 20% of the regular season for every team is usually disinteresting, and they play like it. So, I mean, you, you kind of have to build that in. But I think and, what was other also incredible is in the games when they were disinterested, they still found a way to do what they do. Yeah, and like, I think I think that that's that's crazy. It all, it all comes back to, I think the comfortability with the players have with Burnett, and for me that has really helped me come around on the idea of him being the long term coach here. Uh, you know, pending what we see in the playoffs, but you know, it's looking good. You know, the other thing that I find interesting because I look at teams that have clear chemistry issues. I think of Winnipeg as being like the number one example of that, where you hear about they have issues in the dressing room and you can see it. Like this team had issues in the dressing room in the past. We remember five years ago in the Tom Rowe year where we heard that players were saying, we don't know who the GM is. 
and that was five years ago. I have not yet done this, but I guess I might do it in the playoffs at times. Is like, think about what was going on five years ago, and people were flying banners over the rink saying, Roe must go call him a cab, and where they are now. And I think that's also credit to everybody likes being there for their individual reasons. You've got people who are motivated for whether it be because of perceived slight. You know, Hubert Barkoff and Ekblad have, like, perceived slights against them because of what's happened in their careers, and they've been in Florida, so they've seen everything, whether it be somebody like Anthony Duclair, who has gotten slighted the league over because they didn't believe in his abilities, and now he's got a 30-goal season, whether it's Sam Reinhart, who wanted so badly to be on a team that could win, and is now going to play in a playoff series, whether it's, you know, the Joe Thorntons of the world who want to win the Cup, or whether it's Claude Giroux, you know, it's Patrick Hornquist who wants to prove, like, I can do this, you know, in situations after he won the Cup. He's got nothing to prove. Patrick Hornquist has had an amazing career, but it's another challenge. Whatever it is, there's all those individual motivations that can be balanced together, and everybody likes to be around one another. And I think at the end of last season, when all those – I hate press conferences with hockey players. They're boring. They don't tell you anything. But multiple players at the end of last season, even after what was a brutal loss to Tampa – all things considered, were like, this is the most fun I've ever had playing hockey. And when you heard everyone say it, you started to think to yourself, all right, something's happening here. And this is one year, a really terrible, bizarre year, where you've got COVID issues, you're not playing, you know, you have all these travel concerns, you're only playing teams in, this, in these made-up fake divisions, and they said, this is the most fun I've had playing hockey. And maybe that should have been the sign and it was kind of a sign that something really interesting is going to happen in the following year in a more normal year because everybody really likes playing with one another. And that's what is going to keep this team going. You know, if they have playoff issues, you know, whether in series or whether they don't win the cup this year, that's going to be what keeps them going in the future is like, we like playing with each other. We know we can do this. And if they win the cup, they'll have one of those moments too, where they're like, we want to keep doing this. We know we can do this more. You know, that is the kind of internal motivation that is extremely, extremely pertinent when it comes to whether this team can do this for many years to come. And I think I want to credit a couple things, too, as we start to shift gears towards thinking about the playoffs briefly. Obviously, we don't know who they're playing as we record this. The Checkers won their division with half of their own team and half the Kraken. This is the first year they've had a real AHL affiliate in three years, and they won the division. So there are really good things happening in the AHL, even when you don't have like the highest level prospects available. I was reading a story um, on The Athletic from Joe Smith on like the Lightning AHL affiliate that won before the Lightning became the Lightning. And the Tampa Bay Lightning of that season that they're talking about was awful. You know, this team's got a really good AHL system going while they have a team that's setting NHL records without the biggest, deepest prospect pool in the world. That's a really good sign. And I don't know. I don't. I, I, I don't buy much it, into that. You might I mean, not buy much into that, but I think it already sets up. But to me, a I lot of also... a lot of AHL NHL teams uh, have done a lot of weird things this year. I mean, the like the fan, the way the Flyers ran the fans this year, especially around the trade deadline to the end, was absolutely weird. They like kind of gave up on the Phantoms in the playoff hunt and stuff. I mean, and, it I mean, is weird, just... but it's but. Again, I think that it says something to the fact that they've built a system very, very quickly. Bill Zito's been a GM less than two years. And they built a system in which it seems like we talked about this team running on autopilot. We talked about this team being a team that runs itself, like the best teams in the league can run themselves. 
you know, they have the systems and structures in place. They've done, I think, a really good job of that. And obviously, you know, I, I mean, winning the GM of the year is the kiss of death. But Bill Zito should probably win GM of the year. I mean, I don't think there's anybody even close. And this, the people he's brought in, Brett Peterson, uh, Gregory Campbell, Paul Kapelka, Roberto Luongo's played a huge role in this. You know, this is a really, really good front office. And let's say Bill Zito gets promoted to president, doesn't have as active a hand in the day-to-day operations. You trust that whoever replaces him, whether it be Luongo or somebody that's already there, you go, they're going to be fine. You know, I remember hearing Bill Zito talk about how he brought together Sonny Metz's analytics with talking with Paul Fenton and Rick Dudley, you know, the hockeyest of hockey men. And I, when I heard that, you're going, well, I think he's found something that works here. And for a team that struggled so long to find something that worked, to find harmony in the front office, and was famous for front office dysfunction that we are still talking about six years later, amazingly. Maybe now we're not going to talk about it after this team blew the doors off everybody. I mean, that, that to me is, is, again, a credit to a lot of people. And I think the other thing that should be said is that everyone who we criticized in the past, you know, the ownership, Matt Caldwell, people like that, when they started going through the GM search a couple years ago, they learned their lessons. And they didn't have to say we learned our lessons publicly. They said, we learned our lessons, look at who we hired, and look at the things we're doing now. They, they learned their lessons. And I think the fact that they learned their lessons can be exemplified in the results on the ice. And as somebody retweeted recently, they just signed a new TV rights deal that is basically triple what it was worth already. Uh, yeah. I mean, in a time when I wish that's it wasn't really valid. Well, they, there's uh, well, that's a topic for another podcast. But again, they tripled their rights deal in a time where you don't triple your rights deals for local media, and they had the worst local media rights in in pro sports. That wasn't an MLS. It's it again. They they have learned their lessons in many ways, and now we got to see what happens in the playoffs. So let's shift gear to that very briefly. The last two games don't matter. I do want to see Cole Swint and some of these other young players play because I think they're going to have a role in the future. But it's either Pittsburgh or Washington at this point. When it comes to the playoffs, the Capitals have the extra game. So if I'm guessing, I think they're going to play Pittsburgh, but they're going to play one of the two. Uh, uh, I think I, talk- I, I don't think it ultimately matters because I think both teams goaltending and defense, but really the goaltending are very vulnerable. If Pittsburgh doesn't have a healthy Tristan Jari, I don't think Casey DeSmith is going to be able to do. Not even a, I mean to keep the Panthers out if the Panthers play the hockey we expect them to play. Casey DeSmith definitely. I don't even think Tristan Jerry. I think Jari good. gives them a better chance. And with the Capitals, like they don't know who their goalie is. Like yeah. you, you might have wondered if like the Panthers had consistency in goal and a lot of the wins for Sergei Bobrovsky are because he's just got an amazing amount of run support or whatever. Goalie wins, whatever you think of that. Like the Capitals don't have a guy. And when you don't have a guy, and the Panthers last year didn't have a guy, like, how quickly do they, like, let's say, in theory, they play the Capitals, and in game one, Samsonov gives up four goals in the first two periods. Do they switch? Does it, like, because if you switch, what are you going to, are you going to go back? Like, or is it just because the Panthers score that much? Like, you know, yeah. that that's a question I've, that I have about them. I think um, you should be able to pick your opponent, especially the wild card. Because at that point, they're so close. Like, you know, is, is, if, if Washington beats out Pittsburgh at the end of the year, is Washington really a better team than Pittsburgh? 
I really? think the Penguins yeah. are a better team overall. I think the Penguins are a better team structurally. I think the Penguins, obviously, I mean, they also haven't won a playoff series in four years. So when you think about the way that the team is played, obviously, I think they're a deeper team in almost every regard. You know, I still have Ovechkin against the Panthers' memories. And you're <laughs> like, what, like, what is the situation in which – we're just focusing on first round here, not fu- into the future – what is the situation and scenario in which you'd see the Panthers losing to either team? Like in the Mike, other than, so, Mike like, Sullivan just out, just coaches the Penguins out of. Can the you see Peter yeah. Laviolette with the Capitals as constructed doing that? Because no, I obviously I, think like Ovechkin could get on a heater and the Panthers just take too many penalties because I think specialty teams is an area where they can struggle. But like I think it's more likely Pittsburgh beats them than Washington. Whether I think that's a good chance or not is I don't know if that's the right question. It's I still think Pittsburgh has a better chance of beating the Panthers than yeah. Washington does. I agree, and and it's not. I just think they have the better center and the better coach than Washington. I I hundred percent agree. And I ultimately, agree with that. you would you would you would also agree that they have the more like they have a settled goaltending situation, which I which you would agree is. Yes. Matters in the playoffs. So. I agree that Tristan Jari, I know what happened in the playoffs last year, but he's been pretty good this year. I like Pittsburgh's depth. Like, if you can shut – like, if you shut down Crosby, Gensel, whoever, like, I think they have more depth. I think that they can also play better defensively. I think that's a better defensive team than the Capitals are. Um, I think, obviously, the area – Jack Hahn asked, like, how do you beat Florida? And I said, as I've said on this podcast before – that if you get the Panthers playing a static game, i.e. if you get them to not move around in the same way, like if the Panthers are playing in constant motion all the time, up and down, you're not beating them because you can't keep up with that. But if you get them to be static, like if you do a good job in the offensive zone on the cycle, if you isolate their defenders who are not as good one-on-one, if you get them into taking bad penalties, you can beat them. Because Tampa last year was not the better team five-on-five, but Andre Vasilevsky played out of his skull, and the Panthers took too many penalties. They weren't disciplined enough. So can that happen against Washington? Yes. But can it? would I worry about that happening more against Pittsburgh? The answer is yes. Now, I think the Penguins, if they have Casey DeSmith playing any meaningful amount of time, then maybe that doesn't matter because the Panthers can, even in their worst games, just put shots up, and eventually even the best goalies are going to give up goals. Because that's just so much rubber they're facing. But, like, the part of me thinks the Capitals series would be a five-game series and the Penguins would be six or seven. Like, that's, like, I, I, we don't know who they're playing yet, obviously, but, like, I still worry more about Pittsburgh because I know what the Penguins are capable of. And the Capitals, they had their run. But if you look at them otherwise, do you think they have that ability in them? Like, we saw no. what happened to the Capitals against the Panthers this year. If if they play the Capitals though, they they can't they can't have anybody good on Ovechkin's one timer side. Like you can't have Uyghur and Ekblad going out to like jumping to block out that shot. Yeah, it has to be like Gudis. Sh- yeah, like that. Like it has to be anybody but Ekblad, Uyghur, Forsling. At the you know to be because you can only so many somebody has to play somebody has to block has to take that yeah, out, but, out of the equation. I mean I don't care if it's uh, Ben Chiapet or whatever, but Ben Sherrod. But can, I, I mean he can block I, some of those. I don't yeah. care. 
I, I think, but like that to me is is where I find the difference is just I, I think the Penguins are a better team, even if their record doesn't show it. And I think that if the Penguins are fully healthy and fully firing, they can beat Florida in a seven-game U- series. Ultimately, it's going to come down to the Panthers executing and keeping their focus. Like, if they execute on what they're supposed to do, as we talked about, stay out of the box. Um, you know, I think they are vulnerable even on the move through the center of the ice when, they when you know, their D get, you know, kind of stretched. Uh, which happens often. So if they don't focus, if the D and the center or whoever is F3 don't focus on staying in that middle lane and, and being a good support and safety valve, then, you know, I think whether Washington or Pittsburgh, it comes down to Florida executing on a few, you know, kind of bullet points. Um, and if they do that, they will. I also personally... I don't want to see five forwards in the playoffs in the power play unless you have to, because I think like it can work, I, but I don't, but I don't, I've never heard one good convincing argument against it. Honestly, so, I haven't. It's so, people just like, they, they just attribute, Oh, it's not working. So it's the five forwards. It's not that like, Oh, they're get they're still getting a little comfortable and everything because it is a setup that they're not used to or anything like that. It's never that talk. It's always just five forwards are bad. That's always like I think to me, like <laughs> when I look at the urgency of the power play, I think at times the urgency of the power play isn't so much there when it's five forwards because I don't think it's that they can outskill them, which they can. I mean, you have five of the most talented forwards in the league on the power play. But it's sometimes, do you see the urgency in the areas where you want to see urgency? Like they've given I, up some shorthanded goals and things like that. And but chances. they do they do with Uyghur and Ekblad a ton. They too. do they do it as well. I, I think So that, I don't, I don't, I, like, again, I don't, I guess no it's, one's a, been I able guess to it's a matter of whether to, where you want Barkov to play. And, and to me, having him at the, like, what that's, he's shown that he can score from up there. He's capable defensive. He's as capable as, as, as Uyghur, he's as good of a skater as Uyghur and Ekblad. I mean, I, I, I they, it's not like they have, you know, at, when Ekblad comes back, I don't think they're going to use five forwards. That, that, that's that was my point. Like, if Ekblad's but, but Ekblad, when, that's not going to happen. But. but if Ekblad's not out there on the ice, I don't mind the five. If Ekblad's not available to be out there on the ice because he's in the penalty box, he's in the press box, I don't, whatever. Um, you know, I'm fine with the five forwards. Because I think that they're as capable defensively, and I think the issue is that they need to have a little more kind of structured setup. That what when you think the, it I guess on the, vibes a little too the, much. The one defense, the one thing is a defenseman on the power play is never going to stay on a set. Is never going to have like it's always going to limit the amount of rotations you can do and how far certain people go in the rotations and stuff. I think when they don't, when they have five forwards, they have a little, a little too much rotation, but that's fixable. I mean, that's not something to just break up the unit. It's, you know, Hey, Barkov, we need you to kind of not rotate into these spots. I mean, and if you do rotate, you know, get, get kind of work your way back up quickly, you know, don't stay and hang out there or, cause I, I mean, 
as much as he can be useful, if they're if they're gonna have him be down down low, then they need to run a reverse um, umbrella. If they, you know, like I think they need to give him an area to work with and and control because he's the best decision maker and best passer on the team, despite think, what Hebrido's doing this year. I think, yeah, I think on the power play you also see that. Um, like the only guarantee on the power play is Sam Reinhardt standing in front of the net. But beyond that, like, you know. And I think that I mean, Reinhardt's skill set's going to be really important in the playoffs. Well, and, and also when Ekblad gets back, like, and also handedness matters. So if they had, if Giroux was younger and could skate like Barkov, he would be the quarterback at the top and it would we've be We've seen it a little bit, but, not a ton, but we've seen it a little. But, you know, because, yeah, when Ekblad comes back, that right-hander to right-hander pass from Ekblad to Giroux is going to be really, really nice. And Ekblad has a really good comfortability with Barkov or Huberto, who would be on that sidewall on the other side, on their, to be able to make passes like to them Barkov on the backhand. I like Barkov in the bumper position in, the, in I, that little area. No, I, you know, why? He needs to have the puck way more. But that's the, but that's the alternative, yes. I mean, that's... Because like, you have a, a Reinhardt, you, you have so many... Ooh, Lockheed Martin's calling me. Oh boy! Um, but you have so many options that have have been able to prove to be to score goals, like Duclair, Reinhardt, Lundell, who can do tips and Verhage, Bennett, yeah, who can who can do all that stuff. Um, but not many people can do what Barkov can do from the high value positions. Yes. I so I think we'll get more into that on a future podcast which will be coming out over the weekend with somebody who covers either the penguins or capitals it'll depend on who they play but that will be the more full preview of the series and we'll talk about that other team and how they expect to you know try to contain florida in this way because but because we don't know it's just it's hard to say thankfully tuesday night eliminated some teams that they could play um as we start to shift the rest of the way I, I mean, I, I think this is going to be a really fun postseason. We don't obviously have all the matchups in front of us. But, I mean, this is one of those cases where it's like winning the conference actually does benefit you because as much as I think Pittsburgh and Washington are tricky, I'm really glad they don't have to play Toronto or Tampa in the first round because that series is going to be just brutal. And they don't have to play Boston. And Boston going to the other side is also really nice. Because I think Boston, as we saw on Tuesday, although the Panthers didn't really care in that game, Boston can really shut teams down. Yeah, stylistically, Boston, they're a good matchup. Like, or a bad matchup team, for Florida. Yeah, like they can absolutely contain the Panthers, and yet they can still do some of the things that exploit Florida's weaknesses while being structurally very sound. And the fact that they're playing Carolina means – Two of the teams I'm most afraid of in the playoffs are going to be out by the first round, and that is quite helpful for Florida's cause should they advance. Um, but we'll talk more about the playoffs as we go along. Um, when we do game uh, podcasts after games, we're not gonna, we'll do them as as much as we can. Stay with us. We'll we'll let you know when game when we're going to do podcasts after games, and we're going to do it quite frequently like we did last year. It might not happen after every game. But keep your eyes peeled. We're definitely going to be podcasting frequently because every game is going to be worth talking about. And obviously, the longer this, the more they win, the more podcasts we're going to do. So keep your eyes peeled for that. But there are other things around the league we want to talk about. Um, 
I guess we should talk about some other things just briefly because we are going to talk about the flyer situation in a second, and Tommy wants to talk about that, and so do I. Um, Vegas missing the playoffs is absolutely hilarious, and I don't think it's because of, you know, that they had a ton of injuries and they had an cerebris, which is the term I would use to describe it, but it's more along the lines of if you think the way that Vegas treats their players and what their mindset is is bad, in air quotes, then you must like the fact that Vegas is getting comeuppance for what they're doing this year. Because and I do. I, I know you do. And I find it, again, like, I feel a little bad for Jack Eichel, maybe. Maybe not the people who made the trade, but I do feel a little bad for Jack Eichel. Uh, but, like, that is a, a mindset that you can admire. But at some point, it's not going to work. And what happens when it doesn't work? Like, do you have a harmonious dressing room? Is the relationship between everybody the relationship you want it to be? Because I don't think Vegas has that. Like, if you're Robin Leonard, you have beef with the Golden Knights. If you're Evgeny Dadanoff, you have beef with the Golden Knights. If you are, look, look at all the different players they have that has legitimate beef with the Golden Knights and the Golden Knights management. And you're Pete DeBoer, like, there are a ton of reasons to think that this is, like, the Golden Knights are now in a, uh, I, I would say a pretty tricky spot. Like, yeah. the cap's going up a million dollars next year, and they and they're still already have over it. already over it, and they've got, and that's including losing, you know, they're going to lose Yanmark and Smith and other guys. Like, they've got a multitude of problems. And you know how we wonder, like, oh, teams will bail out Vegas. Like, they've bailed them out of their cap issues before. Do you think it's going to be harder for Vegas to make the deals they need to make to get Absolute, out of cap hell? Absolutely. And for me, I think my funniest thing is the laner Golden Knight beef. Uh, because, one, if you're Vegas, you should have realized after the flurry debacle happened and went down, you better treat Laner nice. And then they didn't. Um, but then also I think for Laner, who um, I think is very overrated and very um, cocky and vocal for, for what he is and, and what, and how he's played. I mean, he's never been when the whole time at Vegas, I don't think he's ever been really the truly better goalie. I think they've just, you know, Vegas has been beefing with their other goalie for a while. And then, you know, they this he's been outplayed by somebody who I, you know, I don't really know that much. Logan Thompson. Um, so, yeah, who is he? I know he's a goalie. Um, but it's not like he was some big prospect or anything like a Spencer Knight or, you know, one of this, you know, anything like that. So, yeah. Um, it's to me it's the quintessential reflection of how Vegas has just jumped from one decision to another without it ever really adding up to a unified plan. Um, uh, the, you know, and the, the, the players they pick tend to be um, people I don't really care for or rub me the wrong way. And it always seems to, you know, not work out or prove me right in, in, in a sense. So I don't know. I, I think that there is a good probably amount of people in that locker room who are pissed off and pissy. And uh, Pete DeBoer, I think, is the poster board for pissed off and pissy. So couldn't be a better team 
uh, to happen to and a better bunch of guys. I, I, I'm really just so, so happy so, for so where them. Do we, so where do we go from here? And I'm happy nice. Tuck, I, like if we could get Shea Theodore out of there, although I think by now his, he's just accumulated too much mileage and his, you know, his best days are behind him, which is a shame because he was wasted. But, you know, if they could get rid of him, then everybody on Vegas pretty much sucks as far as I'm concerned. So it'd be great. Well, Alex Tuck is going to be the next captain of the Sabres. Like, that's just a fact of what's going to happen. And the Sabres right now, you know, somebody pointed out, like, the Sabres' psychological victory over Eichel in the return game. Like, I think for the yeah. Sabres, that was a franchise turning point quite possibly. Like, they've gotten past. And they look – and again – it doesn't matter. At the end of the season, who cares? But they look better now. And for, but for Vegas, like, does changing the coach do anything? Because, like, the biggest winners, in air quotes, as coaches are Joel Quenville. You can't hire – like, Vegas would try to hire oh, him. Vegas but I think is the definitely going to hire Joel Quenville. I think that's – I was actually just going to bring that up. You, what you I think, think like, you think that – okay. So, the, how would you the imagine owner that situation who just gave out? you a $500 million check wants you to do a favor – and all you have to do is have have him paper over a few classes in in the off season to say he did or whatever. And you know, he was fired. There's a big whole thing. People's memory holes are really shallow, and they don't care. Um, you know, they they'll probably move on to their next outrage. I'm sure after he's announced in Vegas within a week, there'll be another terrible story in the hockey community about abuse or misuse of power or something right. like that. So, you, I mean, if I mean, Vegas if, really wanted to lean into I, being a heel, then they would do that. They, I mean, I, I think, I think Foley, uh, that's his last name, right? The, yes, Bill uh, Foley. I think he Did is you, definitely the type expected that Bill Foley was going to end up being the, like louder yes. owner than Vinny Viola. Yes, a hundred percent. I think I think because Vinny Viola wanted to put a team in Fort Lauderdale, Bill Foley wanted to put a team in Las Vegas, and I think to me that just like yeah. says it all. I mean, like, Fort Lauderdale in a flashy place. Like if Bill, if, if 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 Viola wanted to match Bill Foley, he would have tried to look into getting like the Devils or like the Islanders or something where you can be a little more loud. And, you know, like the lifestyle, you know, I don't know. Like Miami's loud and vibrant and stuff, but, you know, it's a little more subdued. Well, I don't think, well, the, the, the funny thing about South Florida sports team is they aren't really that loud. Like the Heat are run by Pat Riley. That's not Yeah, I mean, like team. they could be is what I'm saying, but they oh, are Oh, yeah, no, they absolutely could be if they want, but I just don't think that's in the DNA of the people that run any of the South Florida sports teams other than Inter-Miami, but they have And Zito issues. at certain points. I mean, Zito kind of leans into it a little bit, but, like, he's not – He's not Bill Foley, and Bill Foley no. doing what Bill Foley does. No. But if the Golden so, Knights really wanted to lean into the heel aspect, then they would do the Quenville thing. But I'm just wondering, like, is that something where Gary Bettman would actually say, no, actually, we can't no. do that? No, he would 100% do it because, you know what, I bet you Bill Foley would say, I'll I'll announce, you know, a $15 million do like donation to the – the diversity team or something at the NHL league offices or something to go along with it and, and all this stuff. So they'll, he'll pay for all the PR I, boy. Yeah. I mean, like, cause he's, I mean, at this point he's shown that he's willing to do pretty much anything to win. And he's pretty much exhausted a lot of options. The cap he can't make. I mean, like what's he going to do besides change GM and coach? Cause you, you, I mean, you'd have to what move, 
Eichel somehow. Like, I mean, I don't even know how you create that room. So let's Blow look up at what the they, team like, and... Pacioretty would have one year left. Dadunov, they're going to move. But, like, who else could they move? Are they going to move Alec Martinez? I guess they could. Well, I mean, they... You know, are they going to move Lehner? I mean, but, I mean the thing is, to. the thing is, how can they move? How can they move everybody out and then replace them with better hockey players, fit under the cap, and be competitive right away? Versus, you know, versus the coach running it back. Or, yeah, and with the with a new coach and be like, hey, some of these guys are worthwhile. Find something. I listen. I mean. It, it is a it is a very interesting question, and the 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 way you framed it makes me think it's more likely than just it being a non-starter because it's Bill Foley. And if it was any other team, I think Gary Bettman would be able to put his foot down and say no. But maybe with Vegas, it would like because Bill Foley doesn't care about the perception of his team either. Like th- this is a fact. So if yeah. if I mean people already don't like Vegas, if they end up hiring Joel Quenville or Mike Babcock, people will like Vegas even less. I think, uh, yeah, I think both those names are realistic. And then the only other one's Claude Julian because I think Bill Foley truly believes in like he needs a coach that has won a ring. Like he went with Gallant, they got close, but they didn't get there. Then he fired him. Then he went with DeBoer. Like, like who else is he going to get that can win a that's won a ring? Like, yeah. he's not. Gonna I mean, and I don't think he's going to learn the lesson that he keeps he keeps hoping the grass is greener but it usually isn't and he's getting steadily worse and worse he, he's a, but he's i hope a very, he keeps leaning he's in. a very european soccer owner he's very it's i wouldn't say it's entirely like psg or chelsea you mean he kind of reminds me of that you mean he's a despot well no he is not he's not supporting a despot or using um oh, natural resources be. to become one he but might. i'm saying he might be more willing than any other nhl owner to literally throw money at the problem and see if it works yeah. rather than doing the plan because he's like we always talk. Like somebody has compared him to Ed Snyder, and like <laughs> I don't. It's a different kind of ball game. But in the, but in the most How? basic sense of the, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win, and I'll pay whatever it takes to win without actually thinking about the other aspects of Ed Snyder, okay. which is Ed Snyder was, Ed Snyder in some ways was restrained, in compared to Bill. And Fulton. at least had a plan and like an identity like he was trying he had a template and he had an idea oh there was a flyer way like there was an absolutely a flyer way the nice way is getting the shiny new toy in the market every time yeah Yeah. like that like but like somebody pointed it out it was like he's willing to throw money at the problem and most nhl owners are not willing to just spend gobs and gobs of money and then immediately write those losses off to spend money again like if most teams would not be immediately in the Vegas situation. We're thinking, okay, what are they going to do next? That's kind of nuts, you know, as opposed to, Oh, we're going to rebuild now, you know, something like that. Like, I mean, I think they have, I mean, they can make money like Pacioretty, 7 million, Dadinoff's 5 million. So that's 12 million. Then you have, Oh, and then Leonard, if they have to move him, I say, I think, I think they do. I mean, Part of me is wondering, like, if Robin Leonard's like, no, man, I'm done with this. Like, if Robin Leonard is actually done with this, uh, the team I would the team I would be very interested in if him going to – like, there's a bunch of teams that need goalies, so I would hope that he finds Arizona. a good one. Well, not Arizona, no. Uh, playing, in a, playing in a college rink. No, I actually think the team that he should go to is New Jersey, but that's another discussion uh, for another day. But, yeah, no, Vegas hilariously has missed the playoffs. I didn't see that coming. Um, Dallas getting in is nice. 
I mean, I think they're getting steamrolled by whoever they play in the first round, but I think Dallas getting in is kind of, you know. They're living off of Joe Pavelski, Miro Heiskanen. They're like, there's Jason like. Jason Robertson? Yeah, there's like the hints. There's like four or five guys that are just yeah, dragging like, that team into the playoffs. Oh, yeah. But I mean, hey, I think Jason Robertson, Rope Hintz, um, Joe Pavelski, and uh, and Miro Heiskanen, that's a pretty good team to dra- group to drag you into the playoffs. Those guys are awesome. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I mean, they're they're gonna get steamrolled by Colorado, but like, they got in. You would think. You would think. um, I think so. Oh, I think so. I think. Like, I think. I don't want to jinx anything. No. Well, I mean, we're 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 rooting for the obviously the ads Panther Stanley Cup final, but like, we'll get. Hopefully, we get there. But I think I think I think Calgary's got a. I think Calgary's got a chance to really throw a wrench into that, and I also think Minnesota and St. Louis are both really good. Um, it's how funny would it be if the Wilds go on a run? They like they're also a team that is famously has no runs in the playoffs. How funny would it be if the Wilds go on a run with Marc Andre Fleury and Vegas is out? That would be really funny. I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. I, I I mean, I still can't believe they decided to trade the Vesna winner. That was really stupid. That's I mean, that's that's that's. that's then missed the playoffs. And then they missed the playoffs. Yep. Yeah. Oh, what a what a great thing. Speaking of organizations that are a mess right now. Uh, the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, their results don't matter anymore, but now the team trainers are suing the team because of health-related uh, issues, I think related to, what was it, the Zamboni fumes down in Voorhees? Yeah, yeah, I read I read a little bit about from the, what was, you know, the lawsuit, uh, yes. the filing. Uh, so what they're saying is that, the this is not this is unique to the way the flyers handled their zambonis in the Voorhees practice skate zone um that the air they kept them in had no ventilation and basically the little ventilation it had funneled it into the training rooms where they you know would do the where they would spend most of their time at the training rink and these guys have been there for decades. So, it, you know, obviously that exposure over time. Um, and it's due to, I don't know if it was a certain fuel or oil or some sort of um, what they use or burn in, in the Zamboni um, that other rinks don't use or other teams don't use. And, uh, you know, it's something that, Flyers were aware of and made aware of and did not address. So should be interesting discovery. Uh, I, and what comes out is going to be very interesting and intriguing. But, I mean, it can't be said enough that this is – like the names – like Jim McCrossing suing the Flyers is one of the last things I thought would happen. What's really funny is I not saw – Not saying piece... that the lawsuit isn't completely of merit and – isn't tragic and i i wouldn't do the same thing if i was him but i think what was interesting is i saw a piece where um i think it was dan robson who wrote like the relationship that oscar Lindblom has with you know with jim mccrossin and you're just like really like that's how bad this is getting yeah with the, with the flyers like you've got this beloved longtime employee and he has a relationship with maybe the only inspirational thing about the Philadelphia Flyers right now is watching Oscar Lindblom after all that he went through, right? And now look at what's happening. It's just like, that's, that's just a mess. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, and it's, it's one of those things where it shows you what we, what is organizational rot. Like 
there are so many issues they have to address. Yep. If if that is happening behind the scenes, you can't win. It's just impossible for you to win in that situation. Just 100% yeah. impossible for you to win. And it's something that the Flyers have to decide, like, what do we want to be? And, you know, it's it's just it's one of those things where I think pe- people noticed it. And it's like the Flyers had their good, like, they beat Pittsburgh. You know, they had honored Lou Nolan 50 years. They did all these things, and it's just like, even stuff like that, it's like it's papering over the giant cracks in the foundation. Yeah. What a what a mess that is. Absolute so. mess. And I mean, <laughs> and you know, regardless of your thoughts on the Flyers and how they handle injuries and everything, I mean, very recently these trainers were allowing Carter Hart to play injured in a meaningless game. Um, so this year, uh, like a couple weeks ago. Well, so, yeah. I mean, it's there's like, also. I mean, there's also. It, there's just nothing good happening with this organization. And this is, this could be one of those moments you look back at and say, this started the downfall of the Flyers. This maybe changed the ownership of the Flyers. This maybe led to the complete wiping out of hockey operations, business operations, or, you know, the whole franchise. You know, like yeah. this could maybe, I mean, it could also be. We could also look back at it and be like, yep, this is one of the first things they swept under the rug in a series of things they swept under, under the, rug. the rug. Yeah, but like it also could be the catalyst for them saying, hey, no, we if this is happening to us, we got to do something to fix this. But, Hope, you know, I mean, you, you, you would hope like, I mean, if this doesn't wake them up, I mean, imagine what would like, are they going to have to physically kill somebody? Like immediate, you know, like this is, is it, is this it is passively killing Hawks somebody. Level, would it have to be a Blackhawks level, I mean, like, complete organizational failure from top to bottom, I, endangering human I, beings, yeah. even like I, this? I don't, I don't, I, I, you it's don't want to like you can compare, like you can't even think about how to compare those things. But I mean, ultimately, this could end up in some, but in one or more or two people's deaths, which is just crazy to think about yeah, you don't um, you don't even want to and and to me i hope what it does do is i i hope ultimately this does start the team down a road to get sold to somebody other than comcast or comcast back to core type company like it gets i don't know i don't know if the snyders could get it back or <laughs> i have no idea but i think the nhl has love... a couple of other things on its plate at the moment um yeah i do want to go just a broader context just a couple other stories in the league I want to talk about, there's a Mark Lazarus piece on homophobic language in the league that I do want to talk about in this forum, which is a little bit different than talking about it on Twitter. Um, I want to talk about that in a second, but just a couple of other league things. Uh, Obviously, scoring's up. Not a ton, but scoring's up, and we've noticed it, and it's made for a better product this year. Of course, everybody's now saying, oh, this is great. You know, we've done all this, and scoring's up for good. But I want to look into, like, why the reasons are that this exists. You know, and Greg Wyshynski wrote a piece, and there's, like, a bunch of different reasons. I think the the real reason is there's, like, 70 different things going on that might be unique to yeah. the season. But to me, I think the biggest of all equals is you could talk about the fact that we're in an era where we don't have superstar goalies anymore. We came out of an era in the late 90s, early 2000s, where we had superstar goalies, you know, the Hashiks, the Brodeurs of the world. And now we don't have superstar goalies right now. Like, the best goalies, Igor Shosturkin – and he's gone through downstretch. Andre Vasilevsky's gone through downstretches. Like, we don't have superstar goalies in the same way we have superstar forwards. You know, people were talking about we can teach skill now. You know, guys can who have this natural God-given ability can get better on these skills all the time. And the younger players are more skilled than ever. 
Younger players are coming into the league sooner because of the offensive ability, and they don't have, you know, the defensive acumen. All that's true. And I think all of that has been true, although it's accelerated a little in recent years. But I cannot ignore the fact that this is still a pandemic season. And the pandemic has played a huge role in this. Not just in people getting COVID and the fact that you've seen a bunch of guys who are AHL players or ECHL players playing in the NHL this year because of COVID. You know, all the defensemen used, all the goalie used. But COVID's screwed up the schedule. Like, teams don't practice in the way that they used to, right? We're also coming off the bubble. We're coming off the mess that was last year. We're talking about compressed schedules. There's a lot of mileage on the clock. So I think there's not just physical fatigue, but I think the mental fatigue of the pandemic has contributed to a lot of this. And you can see it in these games. And to me, all of those things are true. The fact that we have an expansion team that obviously dilutes the talent pool a little bit in ways that we have not seen in recent years, because it didn't really happen with Vegas in the same way it's happening with Seattle, because Seattle's obviously a much worse team. But I just think greater among equals is the pandemic. Like, this is a pandemic season still. And maybe next year doesn't have the same level of pandemic-type effects, but this is still a pandemic season. And I think that's the main reason why this is the way it is. And I hope the goal, like, we still see all this goal scoring. It's awesome. It's great for the league. I don't think we're ever going back down to, like, trap error scoring again because the league's too skilled and the way teams are constructed is so different. But I just think this season, among all others, is very pandemic-affected in a way that I don't think we fully appreciate. I think it's... I mean, the pandemic is a big reason, this being the first 82-game schedule in a while. I mean, I think helps. Obviously, the Royal Totals and and things like that are going to look better compared to the last couple years, so it's just going to feel like a lot more. Um, But also, I think... My biggest thing I'd point to is the adjustment of coaches. I mean, I think coaches are not restricting or coaching out skill as much. They are playing those younger players more. Um, They're giving them longer leashes, especially younger defensemen, to carry the puck up in the play, to jump into the play, to get around the zone and everything. Um, You know, whether it's Bowen Byram or... Um, Powers played a crap yeah. ton in early games as, as a save. Yeah, He's I mean, been thrown into the deep end. I think in the same vein, younger goalies are getting played more. Uh, you know, your teams are playing more goalies. Like they don't just stick to one goalie. They're playing three goalies every year, more and more. So that kind of is a dilution of the goalie talent, and you know, lack, speaks to the lack of superstars, like if you want to say. Um, but to me, it's. Players feel like they can take more chances because the coaches aren't going to yell at them. Coaches are playing more of an aggressive, using defense for offense, things like that. Um, willing to play younger players who have more skill and stuff uh, and you know make them feel comfortable that they can do a lacrosse move behind the net and not get yelled at. Or you know they're actively encouraging it. And I think that goes to guys playing better right away, scoring more goals right away. Um, and, and frankly, they're, if they're coaching, I think a lot of coaches are coaching other things. And I think in the past, the only thing they really coached was defense or penalty kill, like, you know, defense, special teams, you know, I think that's kind of where the coaching strategy I think the big, tra- I think the big change you could argue is that 
teams are now actually coaching offense because we used to think offense was just innate. You were either born with it or you didn't have it, right? And now teams are actually coaching offense and players yeah. are getting skills coaches for certain offensive skills. Yeah. And, and coaches are doing running different practices. I mean, I think, you know, Brunette's not the only one that I can, you know, point to, but he's the easiest one to that, you know, practices are much more upper temp, upper tempo, much more hockey scenario, hockey situations, game situations, um, and simulations and stuff than a lot of standing around, a lot of systems, a lot of line drills and stuff. It's a lot more high-speed, high-skill practices. And again, that goes back to coaches being more like I think what you're seeing is all those five years leading up to the pandemic where you know a lot of the hockey discourse was evolving – I think that's finally over the time has, you know, through the hires, through, you know, people adapting and becoming more, it's now, now we're at that place where we're taking an innovative leap because it's the majority of coaches, the majority of hockey operations in the AHL are thinking this way or moving this way and have been for two or three years. Yeah, we, we, so it's it coming seems together. Like we got a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the traditional, like the really like old school hockey men are like out now like they're not still they're not like gone and but like the biggest decision makers are not old school hockey men anymore that kind of thing right well and and you're having coaches like uh like brindamore and stuff who are you know they're coaching players on how to um you know how to create in type space tight spaces or how to create under pressure and things like that, and they're keying in on these specific things that are that would stop them from you being able to utilize their skill in a physical or you know a, a tougher hockey game, and you know it's showing up I think much more than in the past where you know I don't think coaches were necessarily getting that hands on in those like kind of very specific drill down areas, you know, to skill players. Like you said, I think it was kind of just, you know, these are the skill players. I need to just make sure that they're back checking and everything will t- kind of take care I mean, of itself. Yeah, there, there, there's the team construction aspect of it. Like the, like the old school, like goons are gone. Like if you're going to be a tough guy, you still have to be able to play hockey. Like, that was like, I, I mean, you could go watch like games from eight years ago and you'll go like, man, like those guys could not play in the, the yeah. league today. Like they had, would have no chance. And it's yeah. just like, that's how quick this has changed. It'd be comical. And, and it, would, it would be, yeah. And, and like, again, it's, it's coaches, either GMs are putting their foot down or coaches are adapting. But, you know, in the past, coaches would basically have their enforcer and you know some enforcers would follow coaches around and 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 stuff you know like i i think for me it's been nice to see that coaches you know they don't think i need to have a grinder or goon in the lineup to to be able to change momentum or do things like that i can coach i can coach these guys differently i can get more out of them using other tactics and and that's been a huge part of i it. think all of that is going to continue i don't know if score is going to keep going up but I, as i said like i think greater among equals is the pandemic doing all of this because 
I think it continues on an upward trajectory. Just... I mean, I don't think we're, go- as I said, I don't think we're going down, you know, like to, to previous levels. I just think that we're going to see that this year is, is the start of something. But, like, I don't think scoring, I, like, it could go up next year. It could go down. But I don't think, as I said, like, we're ever going back to pre-pandemic levels. Like, I think just the league's changed so much and the, the, the game has changed a lot. And for the better. And that's making for a better pro- – like, the actual games themselves – the product is better than it's been, and that's because I think just the league's adapted. And, let, and let's say it, like, the hockey analytics stuff, like, we know who won, and the fact that everybody's got that now has changed team construction, and they now can look into these things differently. You know, you might say, like, we could look at how analytics has changed all these pro sports, right? In baseball, we could look at what it did, and it made the product worse, right? In the NBA, it changed the product, and some people would say the product's worse, I don't think the product's worse. I think it's just, you know, it's a very different kind of game and there are issues with it. But the NHL, like, analytics, you could argue, had an arguably, like, it was a nebulous effect. Like, you didn't know exactly what it was going to be. And the analytics effect in hockey has been, well, it means that lineup construction and roster construction has changed pretty dramatically because analytics can only do so much in telling you about a hockey game because the game is so free-flowing and the game is so, you know, arguably a coin flip. Like, it's still a hockey game. You know, as opposed to baseball and basketball and football, which have individual pieces you can move around and where you can drill down on individual things happening in a way that you can't in hockey. So I think that might also be why, like, analytics benefit to the game in terms of roster construction is also play a role. There's a lot going on, as we say, why this is happening. But as I said, I think greater among equals, as, and everything you said is correct, greater among equals is the pandemic. And the pandemic doing what it has done to players and to coaches and to teams. And the, I guess the big question is what's going to happen in the playoffs. But we'll see. Um, anyway, I also want to talk about a couple other things as we go forward for this show. Um, the one thing I think I wanted to talk about, obviously, is uh, Mark Lazarus of uh, The Athletic wrote a story a week ago about homophobic language in the league and how uh, the headline goes, if you haven't read it in The Athletic, it's less overt, harder to eradicate. I would agree with that. And I wanted to talk about this, obviously, because this is an area of of great concern to me, for obvious reasons. And it's a tough story to write about because, in many ways, it's a story that requires some nuance and certain people in hockey aren't able to provide you that nuance. So I'll go with this, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, uh, but I do want to spend some time on it as we as we look into this. And I'll say this about Mark Lazarus. He's a great writer. There's certain things that straight writers are never going to be able to write about an issue like this without missing details that somebody like myself would notice instantly. Uh, and so, like, that's not a fault of him. That's just how this works. Um, but I'll talk about uh, one of the things I saw in that story, which is, Firstly, I know you cover the Blackhawks, but I don't think we need Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves to tell us that the culture's changed. You know, you're Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves, and we know what happened with the Blackhawks in the past. I don't really need to hear from them. You know, that's, that's I don't, not I don't, something I want I don't to need the uh, intro framing around Andrew Shaw's reformation. Well, listen. Quote, unquote. Do I think that that's a thing that can happen? Yes. But one person is not an example that can change the sport. I, if you missed my tweet 
when I on uh, that when that story came out, and I said, you know, like if you want an idea of how this has become more insidious, as oh great, Cristiano Ronaldo scored. That's terrible. Uh, watching Manchester United Chelsea as this game happens, I hope both of these teams spectacularly fail in unbelievable fashion. Anyway, the point is, uh, when I saw that story, I immediately went back into my memory banks and say, what have I heard? Um, and what I heard is, and this story was true, and these were among, uh, you know, hockey players playing right now uh, in a hockey group chat, was, you know, when Luke came out, you know, you'd hear people say showers will never be the same. Like, what are you supposed to do with that? Am I supposed to tell you that things are good now because you're not hearing people say actual openly gay slurs on the ice, but that's still happening in group chats? Like, the problem is very much still there. And you saw what happened with the Niagara Ice Dogs. And again, also been mentioned publicly, that team had a closeted gay player on it in the not-so-recent, uh, not-too-distant past, I should say, uh, relatively recently. Um, an AHL player got suspended eight games for homophobic language. So this stuff is still very, very prevalent. And the goal that we should be considering is not how we can reform individual players. And I'm glad Andrew Shaw learned the error of his ways. He should. I think the goal that we have to say is, like, you, people need to understand why this stuff is bad even when you're not talking about it publicly because there are still people around who hear this and know what's going on. If you are a closeted player in hockey, as Brock McGill said in the story, like he would recommend you don't go into hockey. And I would say the same thing. It's a terrible place to be because the culture is still what the culture is. And a, an example of this is how hockey is such an insular place that there are multiple hockey players on every team who will probably tell you, They've never met anybody who is gay or queer before. Because once you're in hockey, the world is self-sorting. Queer people are not going to be there. And if they are there, they're not out. And the only way you would have experienced meeting queer people and understanding queer experiences is if you had had it in your outside life. And that's not an experience everybody's going to have. You know, unless you're somebody, you're Jared Anderson Dolan, who has lesbian parents, or you've played with Luke Prokop, you know, you're not going to have that direct experience because likelihood is if you play with a gay player, he's in the closet. So to me, if I was writing this story, the people I would have talked to would have been Luke Prokop's teammates because they're the ones who would have had to dramatically change their behavior. They're the ones who would have seen it in a very heads up, you know, in a heads, uh, hands-on way, right? Because they've now experienced what that's like directly. They know what it's like because they have a teammate. And they like him, and they, they knew him as a teammate before he was out, and now that he's out. So how have the behaviors in the Edmonton Oil Kings changed? You know, yeah. have they changed? How mm -hmm. did the behaviors with the Hitmen change? How did it change inside the Predators? Like, what have they learned? You know, those are the things that I would ask. Because, um, and, and Andrew Burnett was talking in this story, and as much as I like Andrew Burnett, nothing Andrew Burnett says on this issue is going to change my opinion. Which is like, Andrew Burnett can say what he wants to say about this sort of thing, but there's, unless there's something we don't know about what's going on inside the Panthers organization, and I don't know anything about that, and that's me being honest. Unless there's something we don't know about, that's just a platitude. And nobody, Austin Matthews, is not going to say, yeah, no, the homophobic language in this sport sucks. It's terrible. As one of the stars of the league. He's not going to say that. He's been coached not to say that. 
You know what I mean? And Austin Matthews plays for a team that has a very front-facing, you know, person of in Kyle Dubas who's who has been very good in this situation. Kyle Dubas and Brock McGill know each other fairly decently. So, like that that to me is the thing that I didn't like that didn't rub me the wrong way. I understand why certain people would go for that in a story like this. But yeah. you know, I, it's it's one of the, it's one of those things where I think it's 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 hard for Mark Lazarus to write a story that is different than this because of the perspective he comes from. It's a story that I would write very differently if I was writing that story. Is basically what I'm saying. And I I think you made a you made a lot of great points, but the one that I think really resonated with me was wanting to talk to people who have experienced it because when you when you back when you look at what you've said you know, the showers are going to change. Those are all statements by people who haven't experienced anything and they're speaking out of fear. And they have they're a cartoon expectation of yes. what queer people and, are. And yes. I'm going to make this comment on the air here and you'll tell me what you think about it because I've been thinking about it for a while. Harky dressing rooms are described as brotherhoods all the time. How many times did you hear that? Whether it be pro or the level mm-hmm. you played at. All the time, right? The expectation is from many people who are straight and do not know how queer people operate is that the minute that any queer people see another naked guy, they immediately, they go, they can't control themselves. Right? Like that clear, clearly implied in many comments about, you know, the comment I just mentioned about Luke. So if you put those two things together, you would assume a lot of hockey players are interested in incest all of a sudden. Like, are you but, are you interested in that? Yeah, I but mean, I also, other, other than the other than the idea that I have said repeatedly, which is most hockey players are not very good looking, you know, that is a fact as well. My fact, but it's a fact. Like, that's a thing. And also there, and this is the other straight person, you know, uh, I want to say angle, but this is the other straight person line of thinking that that a, they will never ever ever understand is if you're a queer person, you train yourself desperately to not have a crush on a straight guy because it's worthless. It is totally, utterly worthless and offers you nothing. It is not just empty calorie. It is actively harmful. And it's something that every single queer person has to do. And you talk to any queer person, and they will tell you exactly that. If you have a crush as a queer man on a straight guy, it is one of the most worthless enterprises you could ever have. So you train your brain to not think about such things. So do you think queer people in hockey? I mean, they might say a guy is hot, but they're not going to do anything like that because they know there's no way it would ever happen. All these guys are straight or at least straight passing. So that's another thing that also plays a role in this that a straight person would never know because they don't have to deal with that. It's, it's not something that's that they have to think about in their daily lives. Well, it's just like, well, I mean, what do you do at office when you work with someone of the other sex? If you're a heterosexual, like, can you, can you not like be on a, in, you know, a close team atmosphere with someone of the opposite gender? Like, I mean, it's like, I, I mean, I think there's just so much. Yeah. But I, I would have liked to see more, like you said, somebody who's experienced it so they can help put to bed some of the notions that, you know, there's a lot of, 
There's a lot of bad faith arguments out there that are intentionally trying to scare you or intentionally giving you the wrong impression. And, you know, you kind of, it's beneficial to hear people who've experienced it versus people who haven't experienced it pretending like, oh, it's, it's fine if, you know, you know, everything's fine now because they don't know. It's a guess. They have like, again, People will tell you, like, they don't hear it as much as they used to hear it, but you hear it, and I'm saying, again, that's what's said. What's happening in WhatsApp encrypted chats that you don't see, unless they get leaked? I'm assuming a lot more of it's happening, and based on my knowledge, I know it's happening. So to me, what then are you going to do to change that? Because that culture, as a queer person in this sport, any closeted gay player can tell you, you notice it all the time. It's not something you can ignore. Luke is going to tell you that. Brock, Brock and Gillis will definitely tell you that. But again, Stas Luke, he'll tell you. Like, it's not something you could ignore. Those feelings are always there. You can't, even at the moment where you're most trying to ignore it, you can't ignore it. It's just a fact. And to yeah. me, what needs to be done is to let, and the, the thing that's so hard is I could go into, you know, Brock could go into dressing rooms and be that lived experience and tell people that, and that's true. But... And he has definitely done awesome work in this, but the real difference is going to come when somebody they know that is really genuinely close to them is in a situation where that's where their opinion will change. And that's why I think, that's what I think with Luke is, and, and Luke has said that people have not said homophobic things to him. And I think, then while you think that's a good thing, my cynical view of it is there's two reasons why you wouldn't say anything homophobic to Luke. The first thing is, if you say anything homophobic to somebody anywhere, then that's probably giving them the right to punch you in the face or kick you in the balls. You know, why, why would you do that? And also, why would you want to say something homophobic to a six foot five Shea Weber-like defenseman? I think that's also probably a bad idea, considering he has, you know, razor blades on his feet and a giant hockey stick. Yeah. Like, and, why, and would you think... wanna, why would you want to do that? But then there's the other reason why you wouldn't want to do that is, if you got caught saying something homophobic to the only openly gay player at any level of hockey right now, You'd be suspended for a thousand years and your career would be absolutely ruined. Like you think eight game suspension for somebody who said it in general was bad. You don't even want to know what would happen if you said something homophobic to an openly gay player. That's it. You're done. You'd you'd be toast. Hopefully, yeah. The pressure to to do something would be absolutely immense. And that's that's the missing core. I I think that's the, the... I guess the wrongly connected correlation is that because it's maybe more um, policed or there's more awareness in players that like they can't get caught on a hot mic or something saying these things, or, you know, they know that there's keywords that they can't say, but they can say these other indirect keywords and that's okay. So they just channel it the other way. Um, You know, that doesn't, actually correlate to there being less homophobia it just means that different homophobia they're just yeah like the standard like the attention paid to it has changed so the response has changed yeah and i i think yeah it's going to take unfortunately well, it's not going to take rep- more. It's, gonna, it's not going to take. take repu- it's going to take representation. Is what it's, it's going to. It's it's going to be some like you're going to need. You're going to need more people in the sport. It's just it's going to have to happen that way, and it's going to have to be more people who've genuinely experienced it, 
or or somebody who has you know who could say this is what this is like you know and that's why i'm saying like my opinion would have been in a story like this is i'm not interested in what rod brindamore thinks of this i don't care like congrats i'm glad i'm glad it looks better from your perspective but you're not exactly going to throw the league under the bus you know for this i'm not you know what i mean like pride nights are nice but pride nights don't mean anything if you're just doing them you know it's just another theme night and to me you have to empower the people who are there to make them feel like if they come out that they will feel accepted in the sport and it's not just one of those things where they have to do it through gritted teeth that sort of thing so it's it's a complex topic and it's something that obviously is difficult to write about especially if you don't directly experience it and you don't understand the issues in and out like I do but, and I don't think Mark Lazarus's piece is bad. I just think it's something that I would just tackle from another angle because I would have to. You know, the, the, like younger, the younger generation is a more accepting generation, a more queer-identifying generation, but hockey players are still hockey players. Like, there are more gay players in the sport, as we all know, but they're not out, and you can't... And when the people that exist in the places like Niagara still exist... Like, again, as a queer person, how do you feel safe in that environment? You, of course you don't. And, you know, it's a situation where you have to be able to understand that it's not just lived experiences. It's understanding that it is just more than not using homophobic language. It's an attitude. It's a mindset that's going to be hard to change. And people are willing to change it. That's good. Like, Andrew Shaw learning his lessons are, are great you know, that's, that's fine. And I don't think just suspending people for using homophobic language and running them out of the game is a good idea. They actually have to learn why this is bad. And to learn why this is bad does not mean just hearing from Kim Davis and hearing from Sheldon Kennedy. Like there's more you have to do. And I think it's just genuinely understanding, like, this is what I live through every day. This is what this means, you know? And if you understand that and you truly understand that, then you're, then you can be open to change. And there are people out there who are, you know, and I hope that Luke being around has helped people learn that lesson. But until we see further evidence of it, like, you don't know. I, you just, you can't, you can't say for sure. So that's, I wanted to talk about that story because, like, one of the things that he said was progress is being made. But my, my, my statement to that is there's progress being made because the NHL was at the center of the earth when it came to this issue. They quite literally could not go lower than they were. And so they've made progress. But that doesn't mean that there is still not a ton of things that need to happen. And they absolutely need to happen. And there are going to be more stories like what happened in Niagara coming out. And the, like, wh- what, what is the trigger for people to really say, like, this stuff's going on all the time? I, I don't know what it's going to be. You know, you thought the Blackhawks situation may have been it. I mean, maybe we're changing a little because of that because it was so bad and it took down so many prominent people in the game. You know, well, we'll see. And, like, do you trust the Canadian Hockey League to do this? Well, they just bland Russian and Belarusian players from the import draft when that will do absolutely nothing in addressing the issues they think they're trying to address. So, you yeah. tell me. But anyway, uh, I think that's just about everything we need to cover unless I missed something. I don't think we missed anything. I think we're good. Also, I guess... um. You know, on Friday night, the Coyotes are playing the final game in Glendale. And so I, I go back to a Jim Balsilly and Redfield T-Bomb and those members of the Glendale City Council that every hockey writer became familiar with. 
And I'm not trying to make fun of the Coyotes here. I hope it works out for them. They deserve something better than what they get because nobody has given them a fair shot. The league has tried but has not been able to give them a fair shot. The ownership hasn't given them a fair shot. You know, it's just one of those things where, like, you can see what happens when a bad team becomes good, but the Coyotes are just held back from being that, and that sucks. Yeah, but, I mean, I think at this point, they're so they're in a much bigger and worse hole than I think Florida was possible, probably ever in. And I just don't know, like, maybe it is time to give up. And it, I don't think that says that Arizona hockey is a failure and everything, but... You know, I don't know. I can't. I would. They definitely need a new arena, and I'm definitely wouldn't wouldn't want an ownership that's okay with this arena as owning an NHL team. So, to me, that means they need a new arena, a new ownership yet again, and that's that's awful. It just it's, can't work. It's so frustrating for them. They they deserve it, and uh, also, yeah, the fans I guess, I guess that the area deserve it. For yeah, sure. they, I mean, they produced Austin Matthews, so like. Yeah, and without a hint of irony, Leaf fans will still call Florida, make fun of Florida for being a non-traditional market and say... When the guy who just scored 60 goals for you is uh, is of Mexican-American descent, born and raised in Arizona. Come on, guys. Have, have, yeah. a, sense of, have a sense of tact about this. The other thing I want to mention about that, that, that the homophobic language story is if you read the, uh, the expose on Eugene Melnick's ownership, like, Ooh. the owners also might think this way, too. And so if the owners <laughs> think this way... And I mean, I'm not sure. All, I'm not oh, saying all owners okay. think this way, but certainly Eugene Melnick thought that way. That's a big old issue, isn't it? That's a big yeah. old issue. I mean, like what, not what to dance on to not to dance on graves, but it's kind of good to get him out. I mean, I, I like it is what it is with him. I, I mean, again, rest in peace, Eugene Melnick. You've done a lot for a lot of people, but I mean, some of the things that obviously happened were, you know, yikes. Anyway, uh, again, keep your eyes peeled for Y Hockey over the weekend. We're going to have a guest on to preview whatever team the Panthers are playing in the first round, whether it be Pittsburgh or Washington. And then after game one or two, we'll have a podcast recapping the games. What did we see? And, again, keep your eyes peeled. We're going to have plenty going on during the playoffs from all different angles. Keep focus. Enjoy the last two games of the regular season as I tonight enjoy the National Football League draft. Oh, boy. Oh we're talking about a team that you, that is now the Florida Panthers that does not know how to draft well when, when they are uh, picking high in the draft. The Jacksonville Jaguars are definitely that, so I'm very interested to see how they screw it up. Uh, but absolutely, uh, it's gonna be it's making me think. Like when we do our draft recap this year, we're gonna be spending all these times on Flyers picks because the Panthers aren't gonna have any. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> it's gonna be fun. Hopefully we celebrate. Hopefully we get to we get to laugh at every GM saying congratulations to the Florida Panthers winning the Stanley Cup. That'll be really funny. But, hey, Montreal got the, the, the highest odds to get the first overall pick, and it's in their own building. So, hey, I mean, they get something. And, and I don't think that team's going to be terrible uh, for, for like, not really this bad. But, anyway, enjoy uh, the rest of the regular season. We'll see you in the playoffs, and, of course, good night and good hockey.